Constructed Criticism is sponsored by Oasis Games. MTGOasis.com is the place to get cards for your next Magic event. Try them out with code CCMTG for 15% off of your first order, and use the code WouldThatBeGood for 4% off of every order. Want to support the show directly? Head on over to Patreon.com CCMTG to check out some awesome benefits and future goals for the show. Thanks for listening, and here's this week's episode of Constructed Criticism. Hello everyone and welcome to the Constructed Criticism Network. This network is here to help you improve in Magic the Gathering at every level. From popper leagues to top 1000 mythic, we've got you covered. If you want to hear the entire network, head on over to our sponsor at purentgeo.com where you can hear each and every show, each and every week, and check out their sponsor, MDGO Traders, and tell them that the CCMTG Network sent you. Now sit back, enjoy the show, from YouTube, podcasts, and more, here's this week's episode from ConstructedCriticism.com. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the 401st episode of Constructed Criticism. I am your host, Mason. Join my two co-hosts, Abe and Spencer. I threw them for a loop with no fancy adjectives this week. Is this season four of Constructed Criticism? Is that how that works? <sighs> no, I think seasons go by hosts. More than season four. Not quite anime seasons where we divide it by 23s. I was actually looking uh, to see if I could find out how many podcasts hit it to episode 400. Us, LR, Spike Feed... Monday Night Magic, Feed from the Real. The Maria Bartoli and her co-host. Well, it depends. Are they one podcast? Or did the name change change their... Uh... I think the Command Zone's also close, but they did two episodes a week for like eight, two years. So that catches them up pretty quick. I would only count weekly podcasts in, in this. It was interesting. I was like, man, there is not a lot of these. Also, the fact that there is so many in Magic is also impressive. That's a lot of content. A lot of content. <laughs> it is. Well, I'm about to go to Always Improving because it's the main point of the show. We're going to talk about the Pro Tour. We're going to go all over that. But first, we do need to do Always Improving because it's the main point of the show. And Spencer, you are about to hop into it. And the notes have you first. So it's a real one-two buckaroo moment. So I have two. Are you guys okay with that? Yeah. Go for I'll it. it. A couple weeks ago, I had a job interview. And they asked me um, during the job interview, like, what's the greatest accomplishment of your life? And I got the questions beforehand and uh, you know, I said, it's actually going to happen in a couple days. It's I'm going to record episode 400 of my, my magic podcast. And I got really teary eyed and like eventually started talking about, I was improving and stuff like that. They started told me that like my answer to that question is why I moved in on the interview process today. <laughs> and I'm not looking for a job for those who don't know. Like I love where I work now and like I got recruited for this job and, but it was a really interesting moment where I got to talk about that because that story went through their entire company, this emotional response to this thing. And and there was a point in the, the next conversation I had that was kind of being yourself and being honest and how they really appreciated that I did that. And it, it made it, it really took the interview from like this moment where People like present a fake version of themselves to, oh, this is, this is who Spencer is. I get asked a lot about work from podcast listeners. So I thought I'd take an opportunity to just say that I think that we are in a cultural shift in the workplace where being yourself is actually really important and people really want the true you at work because you spend the majority of your time with your coworkers and the always improving moment that I had today was realizing that whether or not I get this job as, as the, one of the two finalists, I really did everything that I could. And like coming to terms with that and having acceptance, I did what I could. I presented who I was and either they want me or they don't. It kind of harkens to what we talked about with Adrian's question 
I don't remember if it was last week or a few weeks ago where like you have to be okay with the result with the preparation you put in with the decisions that you've made right i actually thought about that question around when coming to that conclusion today it was really impactful that's awesome what was your uh, other always improving moment i played my first mtgo challenge in years this week <laughs> <laughs> I, I had so much fun and the always improving moment actually came from like needing to familiarize myself with MTGO again in a lot of ways. I'm really good at like being hands-on in paper and like collecting the information I need to collect, how I need to collect it. The match that I want to specifically talk about was round two versus arguably the best dredge player in the world. So I'm, I'm playing in Sodek round two and I win game one. I'm playing pretty well. I just punted game two really hard where I didn't check his graveyard and he had an ox in it. And because of that he got to activate his ox and I, with a Tormod script in play, even at that moment, I still questioned like, when was the right time to do this? Should I have done it during my turn? Should I have done it during their draw step to let them dredge? Should I have done like, when should I have done this? And it brought up an interesting conversation that like one, I didn't check Sodex graveyard. I should have. I think I saw a stake imp and just assumed that was the next turn. Like, I was going to wait for that, but in paper, I would have. So why didn't I on MPGO? You know, it put me on one, to 1-1 one, in the tournament. I could have been 2-0 after beating a very good player to really set my tiebreakers up in a good way. Overall, I did pretty well. I think I went uh, 5-3 with uh, two of my losses being to Murktide and Storm. For context, though, I played Tron. Storm is literally unwinnable for what it's worth i played three main deck relics and i still didn't think that there was like a world in which i win that matchup and Murktite also felt really bad um the fact that they are a spell pierce deck is pretty bad for the current duration of tron if there was one change i would make to the deck i would cut and nature's claim in the sideboard for a cabin of souls and and kind of play the games a little bit differently it was a really cool event to like get back into mtgo set my stops correctly the way that i like them and it's a good learning experience. I know that there's an announcement on the 31st for the future of the OP, but legitimately I do think that like challenges are <laughs> something that I've wanted to do for a long time. I got the buy-in from my wife to let me do it and cashing this one and, and getting to kind of continue going forward is pretty cool. If you want to look at the list that I played, it just took second at an energy. I played that exact 75 and that's the only change that I can think of right now. That was my magic always improving moment. It's just like taking the moment to like play MTGO like you would play paper, I think is pretty important. Yeah, especially for a deck like Tron, which uh, allocates you the time to do so. <laughs> I literally walked downstairs after round one and my wife's like, what happened? Why are you down here? And it had been like maybe seven, 11 minutes. And I was like, what do you mean? She's like, is everything okay? I was like, yeah, I won. She's like, oh, okay. I had five matches finish in 15 minutes or less. So I once played a modern challenge with Tron where I started it off. I started playing and I was like, oh, I promised a friend I'd meet him at the LGS later. So I won my round, drove 30 minutes to the LGS, played that round at the LGS, hung out with him, played another round at the LGS, hung out with him, played the next round, won it, was live for top eight, drove home, was like two minutes late to the round, got on my computer and played it. Straight up, <laughs> I went to the store twice during that modern challenge. Heck yeah, that's a sick. Like, went to the <laughs> went to the liquor store. So after round one, went and drove and got uh, rock stars to like kind of you know get my caffeine in my system. Went to the liquor store. So I guess I went to the store three times, and then I also picked up your food another round. Like that Tron's both very easy to play, quite strong and pretty fast. My always improving moment 
comes from getting ready for Pioneer. So I have a, I have a pretty hot take that, uh, you know, isn't always true as we've, we're going to reinforce today. But that is that uh, if you could be playing Control, you probably can find a better deck in the format. There's, it's probably not the thing to be doing. You know, there's no cancel that's going to fix your deck. Having Absorb isn't going to make your Pioneer deck great or whatever. But uh, the Wandering Emperor had me looking at Blue White. And I was like, dang, I think Blue White's really good. I'm going to break my vow. Uh, you know, that like not play Control, be doing something better, somewhere I can leverage a bit more stuff. And was super impressed with blue white control and pioneer, and you know being willing to break the heuristics and challenge myself. It was the always improving moment, and I love that deck. I'm playing a team tournament at SCG Indy this weekend, so also if you see me, say hey. You know, I'm hoping I don't get to play pioneer on Sunday so that we make day two, but it's a win-win weekend for me because I'm I'm gonna play blue white control on Sunday if things don't go well. I can't tell if you actually had an always improving moment because like you gave horrible advice before it well then the always improving is that he's listening to that oh he's, 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 he's deviating he, away from that horrible advice he gives okay. everyone all right all right and he's letting himself play blue white control okay. am, am i getting that right mason well the thing was i had said never play control or whatever because it's bad you're still saying it was such gusto and confidence well, because you're, I, you're, you're <laughs> if you follow this advice you'll be more right than you are wrong but the always improving moment is to still challenge yourself on things that you believe to be true or whatever uh, and be willing to check yourself and see when you're wrong. And I was wrong. I think Blue White Control, at least a couple days ago, maybe even in this weekend, is a good deck in Pioneer, if not like one of the best decks. The Wandering Emperor is so, so strong. A Abe and I were talking about whether you play Settle or not earlier, but like even just Memory Deluge Wandering Emperor is such a punishing like interaction. The Glimmer Settle Squeeze, but both these cards are better on every turn of the game than Glimmer and Settle. Wait, so can also have Settle in this squeeze. Let's go. That's uh, what I just said! You were listening I'm to anti -settle. me! I'm anti-Settle. I was talking to Abe Mason. Yeah, I said Abe and I were discussing about if we should play Settle oh, or not. got it. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm, I'm in the anti-settle camp, everyone. Maybe I, I like I attacking with all I my think... creatures too much, and I'm an, I'm an inside, it's an inside job, you know? I do think that this brings up one of those moments on the podcast where we can talk about like a future episode. And if you like this idea, leave a comment. I would love to do an episode where Mason debates Spencer and Abe on control. Uh, well, one of us has to be a middle party on that. I don't want to yeah, have the like, two v one. Mason is built different episode. I mean, I could do it. I would just be snide the whole time. Legitimately, like episodes where where we legitimately on the show are talking about things th that way would be a good insight for the listener. So if you're interested in that, leave a YouTube comment. Yeah, definitely agree. Um, I'm going to go into my always improving topic. I got to kind of follow up Mason here talking about realizing that you're wrong about something. Let's rewind to last Monday. Luris gets banned in Pioneer and Modern. I'm a Hammer Time player. Luris, pretty big deal for that deck. Trying to figure out what's going on. And I um, had this idea that I think when you have an idea, a lot of times you're half right, half wrong where you could forego all of the blue cards that most people were playing for just access to Reality Chip and Teferi Time Raveler, because Teferi Time Raveler was kind of this lights-out piece I think a lot of the decks that you were worried about wouldn't be prepared for. And that part of it was true. What I forgot, however, and I learned, again, in my time playing some leagues and really testing out these ideas in, in the wild, was that Modern is, you know... One-third the decks that you think about and expect, and two-thirds the decks that you can just never predict. They're not the things you're expecting. You can't, you can't write out the modern metagame and be like, these are the only decks I'm going to play. And I'd kind of forgotten about that, uh, that simple rule of the format. 
and was telling Mason that I was like, I am never, ever registering a spell pierce in my hammer deck. Was this before or after the literal conversation the three of us had where I said spell pierce was cracked? This was this was deck. after. I still disbelieve. I was like, Whoa. I refuse to play spell pierce. I think it makes no sense. Uh, which is kind of it, it's that old like philosophy of like oh you should like try to play cards in your seventy five that fit with your plan A first you know if, if you're playing a burn deck you want to play more smash smithereens than something like shattering spree because even though shattering spree does more you need you need to fit your game plan right so that was my thinking is that if Teferi can be this lights out card against um, all of the fair decks that I'm thinking about then that's actually what I want but I like from playing realized that you know you actually need spell pierce because it plays more roles like you you need a spell pierce or thought seize that can just efficiently interact at the point at which you need it with a bunch of the random decks as well and i had kind of forgotten about that being such a big function about thought seize in the black decks and how good it was to have access to an effect like that and and i'm admitting now on the podcast is my always improving moment my hammer time opponent could have really used a spell pierce this weekend in the modern challenge for what it's worth i only lose to tron when they gut shot me so I don't know what spell pierce has really helped me there. I did gut shot my Tron this or my my. It's rough. That Ink Moth Nexus I, never saw it one, coming, dude. There's there's only one gut shot in the seventy five that I played, but I definitely brought it every time and got him. Like I said, it's the only thing I lose to out of Tron. I think that matchup's good. A of that of that always improving was taking the time to really sit down and think about the play patterns and how it plays out. But B was also going through the work of testing that assumption. And, you know, coming around to the idea that maybe that I was oversimplifying things and that I was wrong about it and why really was uh, what I've been thinking about for this week as I get into my next week of getting better every day. Yeah, let's move on to the Patreon shout out. I told Abe I wouldn't tell him I told him so on the podcast, so I won't tell him I told him so. Let's give a big shout out to Martin Grant. Thank you so much for becoming a patron of the show. If you wanted to support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash ccmtg, become a patron. And, uh, you know, also other benefits like being in the Discord. We talk about decklist. We had a bunch of conversations about various things in Modern Pioneer just last Friday. You can also ask questions, which we'll come back to later in the show. I just want to give a huge shout out to Martin. I messaged him to like check if the new connection to the Discord was working. He's like, oh, I don't know. I haven't even looked yet because he's like in the in one of the tiers where you get that right because you have to be. I think it's five or more to get that. He's like, you read my comment, my YouTube comment on the show, and like the way you guys did it was super cool. You know, supporting the creators that you love is like something that I try to do, and I just really appreciate that you didn't even look at the benefits. You were just like, this has brought me value and entertainment, and and I don't know. I just think that's awesome. Thanks for the cash. Uh, let's go into some housekeeping. <laughs> Thank you for supporting the show, though. Instead, well, I can't be emotionally vulnerable and sit on like a joke. Uh, but we do need to do some housekeeping, Spencer. Yeah, so we have two things to talk about. The first is the schedule for the release of the show. And one of the things that I, I try to really care about in my interactions with people is the understanding that everybody's human. We asked our editor when we hired an editor for this show recently to have a 24-hour turnaround time. He had to bring in other people. It still wasn't meeting his expectations or ours. And like we had a real conversation about it and we will no longer try to be releasing on Wednesdays, but instead try to be releasing on Thursdays. Our editor doesn't just edit our show. They edit common knowledge. They edit drafting archetypes. They have a full-time job to be fair. Like if I was editing the show, it would probably also come out on Wednesday or Thursday. Still, it's, it's not like there's that big of a difference other than the fact that I'm a busy person. <laughs> While you used to be able to expect the show on your drive to work on, on Thursdays, you will now more likely expect it on your drive home on Thursdays. 
The other one is a Patreon announcement, just that like we are going to be ordering the wristbands that people loved in the past uh, and be shipping them out as soon as possible. I should be ordering them probably here in the next two weeks. Uh, I changed how I did wristbands with the other podcast I do, Arena Mythic Cast. So I wanted kind of to do something different for this one, but I, I kind of have an idea now. We'll be ordering those and ship them out as soon as possible. Just wanted to let the patrons of the show know those will be coming. Um, it is March, which is the time frame in which we promised those. So I'll be ordering them and then shipping them as soon as I get them. Awesome. Great. Well, this is on our main topic. We're going to talk about the Neon Dynasty set championship that just happened this past weekend. Set championships are the Pro Tours, essentially, if you haven't uh, been keeping up with the vernacular. And this format was a split format, Historic and Alchemy. So uh, Historic and Arena-only format with a diverse card pool. And Alchemy is sort of standard plus the alchemy cards with some changes and stuff, which has some pretty interesting impacts on the format. I think it's probably best if we start with alchemy. So I think that's the format the most people know. And then we'll kind of break that stuff down. Then we're going to talk about the uh, alchemy stuff after that, besides the overall picture. Uh, but before we get going, you know, huge shout out to the zoomers. Uh, Zach got second, uh, losing to Eli Cassis in the finals and uh, qualified for worlds and has the classic Andre Strasky moment of I'm quitting magic to focus on college. It's my first semester. Wins the PTQ that he did there and is now qualified for Worlds. So kids, if you want to do better in Magic, uh, just quit. There were two Zoomers in Top 8 and like they showed like the MTGO numbers from the Zoomers. MTGO players did the best at this event other than MPL members' MTGO qualifications was like the order. To keep it a stack for the listeners, I've looked at everything, but I only watched the finals. Uh, I technically saw part of round one as well. So... Uh, I didn't. I didn't see this exact thing, but I saw something like that going around on Twitter. One of our listeners uh, was was a teammate of of Zach's and, and Henry. I love seeing the young bud doing well. I think that like certain pros might have tweeted some nasty things this weekend about the young blood. I, I think it's cool. Like I I love seeing it. I know the amount of work that these kind of dumb to call them kids now, right? Because like they're all not kids anymore because they're all qualified for the pro tour, which you have to be eighteen for. But like. I, I think that it's cool to see these people that have put in a ton of work over the past few years and now finally get their shot at the Pro Tour due to the rules, like, crushing it. Like, I, I just think it's awesome. I don't know. I think it makes perfect sense to me intuitively that the people who perform the best outside of the, you know, people who are just spending years playing professionally are the people who play with everyone else who's so serious about it that they continue to play on Magic Online like all the time. Like the names you'll see in Magic Online events, not even just like the the young blood, but some of the the old guard who still play there, the opportunity they get to really test themselves against the best on Magic Online, regardless of format, you know? These are two arena-only formats they played at this PT that you can't play on Magic Online, but the people who qualified from that performing so well not, does not surprise me at all. Looking at the decks themselves, so when it came to Historic, the, the most brought deck was Is It Phoenix at 24%. And then there's a spattering of other decks around the 9 to 5%, including Azorius, Golgari Food, Orzhov Auras, Jeskai Control, other Auras, and Rakdos variants. I'm really surprised by everything that kind of showed up when it came to Historic. I have always thought the Phoenix deck is a little mopey, but a little mopey. 
and uh, historic. And I've always found the Aura decks to be really good. And the data does kind of support that a little bit, uh, not to jump the gun too much, but the Orisov deck did quite well. I'm sorry, the uh, Azorius Aorus deck did quite well, Wimps and Wise, and Orisov Aorus did quite well as well. Not quite as good as that, though, but what do you all think about this uh, sort of showing from Historic? We obviously see the metagame share of 25% of it being Phoenix. I've never thought Phoenix was the best deck in Historic. Like, to me, the best decks, in my opinion, are Golgari Food, some kind of Aorus deck. I think that you can build Gruul in so many different ways, it's kind of hard to say, like, which ones are good, but I was pretty shocked by this like i think Rakdos decks at large are super overrated and historic i think that phoenix wall is i think a good deck it might even be tier one it seems super overrepresented in this field especially for a, a format where you expect people to become ready for it and then the last one i think that's just super overplayed was was five color niv i just have never understood the appeal of that deck that one only had like 1.7 percent looking at the metagame share the Jeskai control deck makes a lot of sense to me. Like, I don't know if that, I don't know how many of the Jeskai decks they combined, right? We've talked about it on this podcast. I might have even done a deck tech or streamed the, um, is it Indomitable Creativity versions? So I, I don't know how they, how they stack those or if it's just straight up like it's blue white with lightning helix. Those decks have always been tier two to me though, right? Like after they ban memory lapse. I also just think that Yorion is unplayable in historic and i was surprised to see people bring it i think the wandering emperor does a lot to help these control decks of the way i know i mentioned that card earlier in pioneer i think that is a card that i was pretty high on in our set review i was pretty high on in my articles and i think that i underestimated it by a lot and it's funny because i was having this conversation on thursday with somebody and then sam black on saturday did the same tweet he did when he when we found out oko was one of the best planeswalkers of all time and tweeted like how good do you think the Wandering Emperor is? And I was like, ah, oh, flashbacks. <laughs> but I, I think the Wandering Emperor is really, really good. And I think it does a lot to fix a lot of the metagame problems in Alchemy for those decks. Memory Lapse was really crucial for backbreaking turns. So I think the Wandering Emperor, while different, fills a similar role of letting you answer those bigger late game things and also kind of like stymie some progression on their part. We're going to get into this in both of these. So we might as well just talk about Wandering Emperor for a minute. That card is good in control. It's good in mid-range. It's good in aggro. It feels like 2022 uh, Restoration Angel, you know? It's it's just playing a role. It's good when it's good. You get a little bit of value here, a little bit of something for your investment now up front. You get a little, little payoff in the long run, too. I've probably played well over 100 games with and against that card, and I already have had multiple turns with and against it where I, like, didn't even think of the full implications of, like, kill your thing, put a token on something, or kill my thing, make a guy. Like, whatever it was, I just underestimated it multiple... Like, I knew the two-turn sequence, but I didn't understand the cascading effects of, like, just an extra activation in a lot of cases. Along those lines, I think that's part of why the Yorion got to take up as well, Spencer. It's flickering your Wandering Emperor. lets you use it twice in a turn. Yeah, you can use it in that end step. End of turn, flash in, kill your thing, put a counter on my thing. Yorion, flicker these, kill your thing again, go. All right, it's over. (laughs) It's my turn again now, finally. Just now on the podcast, I had an always improving moment. I had not considered those implications. Flickering Walkers is normally really bad, so I don't blame you. (laughs) I need to look at these decks, but are the blue-white versions in historic, like, um, enchantment decks with the blue-white Planeswalker? The one that makes the shards? Nico Aris, yeah, yeah, yeah. If you can, like, play uh, Wandering Emperor, that Planeswalker, 
the three four archon a bunch of enchantments with flash like the omens right that actually sounds like a strong deck blue eye control did pretty bad at this event in historic there's too much hostility to it but the wandering emperor does a lot to make the deck playable i also think the alchemy only card the board wipe does a lot to help too and pushes out a lot of decks the uh divine purge thank you that that card goes a long way um but it's still not enough things like phoenix punish that card i also would be interested how many march of uh otherworldly light these historic decks were playing too because uh-huh. i think that card's super underrated across the board seen a lot of three to four in the lists just scrolling through both the the white legendary land and the blue legendary land are cracked the more we're talking about this you guys are talking me on into like really going at it i have just bought four wandering approach from oasis games so we we're talking about this because i had forgotten <laughs> yeah. I, when you can Let's use code go. would that be good to get five percent off your shipping just like i did you can play in our event we are running a 1k in the next quarter should we move on to alchemy i feel like we talked about historic a lot before we move on and Abe, whatever you want to say as well i think the food decks are still good They've just got some problems, and their matchups are polarized. And I think the data kind of shows that. Part of the reason that Phoenix was the most represented deck is that some of these archetypes, if you look at the breakdowns, like if you were to combine Jeskai and Blue Eye Control, which are kind of the same idea, but Jeskai has some more spot removal to make, like that's cheaper to help with some of the more targeted matchups for that. It starts to condense a little bit, but I think Phoenix was just the path of least resistance, same with food. Uh, and when it comes to a format like Historic that's really open and there's a lot of possibility and a lot of option for change, I would probably feel better about registering a deck like Phoenix where I feel like I have a lot more agency than registering something like Auras where I feel like if my opponent shows up with a plan, maybe I'm just dead. What would you two have registered in Alchemy and Historic? I definitely would have played an Auras deck in Historic. I'm pretty sure Lightpaw was going to crack that deck. I just haven't had a lot of time to actually put in to playing that. But I think if I, if I couldn't test, I would play Auras off Auras with Lightpaw, Saram, and Core Spirit Dancer. And then in Alchemy, I probably would have played a Blood... Undercity Connoisseur, is that the name of the card? I would have played some mid-range deck with that card. I probably would have played a food deck, or I would have played Auras. I don't really play a ton of the Alchemy card-included formats these days, uh, Historic included, so uh, I'd be pretty out of touch, so I'd want to pick something that I understand functionally uh, that is powerful and proactive. And so. Sure, I would have ended up on Jun Food in Historic and Mono White in Alchemy. Let's move on to Alchemy, though, Mason. Yeah, so Mono White, the most played deck, ironically, with almost the same number of people that played Is It. I wonder how many people are Is It Mono Whiters. But at 23.1% of the field with 53 decks, we had Mono White Aggro. Then we had Naya Runes, which I think a lot of people didn't realize at the masses was actually good in Alchemy. Then we had Ords Off Adventures, which we're going to come back to in one second. Mardu Midrange, Azorius Control, and Rakdos Sacrifice all coming in at about 7 to 5% of the field. And before we hop into anything, Abe and I have an agenda to talk about. Let's talk about how many people bashed the balance team for saying oh there's adventure cards getting buffed in alchemy they're never will see play oh they, what are they doing these cards aren't good enough making them cost one mana less won't matter and it not only won the pro tour but was those cards should have been popular multiple other decks and were a large percentage of the meta game uh, i think players need to check themselves sometimes especially if cards start costing one less mana the amount of hate towards those balance changes that I saw of people being like, why even bother doing this? Why am I getting told that this is happening? And then a team of all of the best Magic players in the world deciding to play decks full of the cards that they rebalanced, being like, oh, let's try it, play it, and finding out that it's good is the exact reason why they do these things. Like, they want to take cards that aren't being played and turn the cards that will be played. Like, this is honestly the story of the entire event to me. 
is something that really validates a lot of what the alchemy team exists for and like what alchemy as a format exists for decks like this popping up out of cards that would not be able to be played in standard i don't know that i agree with your premise around naya ruins didn't naya ruins like win a pioneer challenge or something i think it did something in an older format that was not standard it definitely wasn't Naya Runes and Pioneer, because I'm on that format like a hawk. But I'll double-check myself while you're talking here. I knew going into this event that Naya Ruins was cracked, and I expected it to be the most played deck. That's I would also that's won some Week 1 standard PTQs and stuff. Yeah, so. I had pretty close to zero doubt that Naya Ruins would show up in force. And I think most people in the loop felt that way. So I'm a little surprised to hear you say that. I think a lot of people from talking to them this weekend were surprised that deck could swing in Historic. Or, sorry, in Alchemy. Misspoke, misspoke. If you ask the people who played Mono White, they specifically played it to get under Naya Ruins. I've been pushing Mono White in Standard for the exact same reason in our Discord. I'm playing Mono White because it goes underneath this deck. It also lets you play the removal that you need for it. I was not surprised to see those being... Two of the top decks. I, I think you misheard me. I'm saying people who are not in the loop. I went to like a couple local tournament events and people came up to me like, wow, did you see that Naya Runes deck is playable on Alchemy? And I was like, yeah, it's really good. Can we call Alchemy Tomb World? Not everyone's ready to bear this task, but I am willing to. Orzov surprised me just because like I haven't played a ton of Alchemy. The dungeon metagame was something super interesting to watch throughout the tournament. And like there was a lot of interesting stuff. In this fan, I know that Mason, you said you only watched the finals. I was listening to the finals as I was playing video games with my son, and it was really interesting. And then I watched, I don't know, like 13 rounds of this event total, whether it was in the background or having it be my main attention. There was a ton, and the the alchemy metagame was extremely different than what I believe the standard metagame is. It is a, actually a different format. I am not interested in alchemy any more than I was before. You know, it's our job as people that do a constructor podcast to like try and hype it up. But like, I would just rather play standard so that I can have my paper cards and my arena cards do the same thing and be the same place. That doesn't mean that it wasn't interesting to watch and see how the best players in the world attacked these problems, because I think it was really interesting to see that part. And that is the portion that like, even if you are a standard player and not an alchemy player, it's still really interesting to see like, Here's the problems that this format presented in a format that's really similar to a format that I play. How were the problems attacked? The Alchemy exclusive cards make it a different format. Things like City Stalker Connoisseur, who I was talking about earlier, but thought it was Undercity. Uh, that card is really, really good and does a long way in allowing these like Orzhov midrange decks to actually grind and get the time to go through the dungeon. Um, for those that don't know, City Stalker Connoisseur is a 4-mana 3-3 death touch that when ETBs will discard the highest mana value card from the opponent's hands and then make a blood token on ETB as well. So it always 2 for one to your opponent. And then if you ever get to the late game, which your mid-range deck is pretty good at, you start turning lands into spells or moving through your land pockets. So uh, that card is super nice. Stuff like that just isn't part of standard, will never be part of standard. It gives it a nice flair and it's cool to see those cards be role players uh, and not focal points, which I really like. I don't remember if it was historic or if it was alchemy, but like I remember the first time that somebody cast uh, Inquisitor Captain against me, and I was like, what is happening? The formats are different. That's good in a lot of ways. I highlighted the ways that I don't like it, but that doesn't mean that it's not good. I think it's cool to have formats you can jump between if you're an arena-only gamer. 
Like you can play standard for a couple weeks early on, then you can go to your historic, then you hop back over to alchemy. There's been some changes to new cards. It's a shame that these, these set changes are coming so close to the next set. Abe, do you have any big thoughts on alchemy? I know you don't play a lot. And I know you kind of mentioned how this helps sell you on alchemy having a reason to exist this past weekend. I think the format as a whole, getting its place to exist in high-level play, you know, left an impression on even Spencer of like, wow, these games were still really sick. There's a lot going on that makes it different from standard in a way that's good. And just, it was really validating to me as someone who like is a fan of alchemy as an idea and feels like it can work. It's just not for me to see that it is working. And even though I still feel like it's not for me for much of the same reason that Spencer does, that it was still something that like was successful and, and well-received by people and, you know, hopefully will continue to be. Did y'all learn any, any big things from this tournament? Any breakthrough stuff? The, the big thing I learned is that gamers love to game. You look at the data on Orzhov Phoenix over here, and uh, or sorry, is it Phoenix? And why is it Orzhov? And it's fine. It definitely has like the Jun win percentage or whatever of the world, where it's like you know plus a little in some, minus a little in others. But people love to play that sort of thing, uh, regardless of how other powerful options are in the format. So yeah, I mean, probably my biggest takeaway, especially when it comes to historic, is that the format has kind of reached a stability. For the first time, I think there's been so many bannings, these alchemy cards coming in, but you know, you look at what people kind of expected the big decks to be, and they were the big decks. Food and uh, and Phoenix were both huge portions of the metagame. You know, both had medium-ish results, and they were kind of like the safe picks of the tournament. Kind of feels like that format is reaching a place where it's not getting shaken up by like, oh, something new happened. And also that it still remains better to be proactive in a format like that then really reactive is all the control decks looked like they got kind of smushed either by like their own arms race or then in some percentage of that the the decks like auras and like or just decks that had the ability to be pro very proactive were just much much better across the board in that metagame i remembered mine and i have three specific ones the first one that i'll mention is the win percentages of some of the decks against certain decks i mentioned that i thought that jeskai control was like a literal top deck in historic and I, this could be a symptom of arena right to me like my win percentage with jeskai in historic is, is really high uh, regardless of the version that i'm playing whether it's just straight control with prismari command or lightning helix and stuff i mean i think i even have a deck list floating around the discord where like i just cut yorion and played blue white control or jessica control or something and was like just cut yorion and play this list I, I won my first 10 matches it was super easy I was surprised by some of the win percentages, specifically in Historic. That was an, an, a learning moment for me. Two of the other big ones is, one, I might have talked about this on the podcast, and I will continue to do this for as long as I do it, and if you hate it, leave a comment and let me know, but like, there was a really big analog to Super Smash Brothers in this tournament, and it had to do with switching dungeons. I think it was in the finals. Eli switched which dungeon he was going to. And this is something that has come up a lot for me in Smash Bros, where you have to evaluate what are you doing that's not working and what are you doing that's working, and then adjust. In Magic and in Smash, I get caught up in like my game plan. And it was really impressive to see people switching their game plans mid-set or match, because uh, it's not something that I'm good at. And like seeing it happen in Magic, when I've seen it happen so many times and an analog to magic for me was huge always improving moment like something that i know i know that i've done wrong where i've hung on to game plans that just aren't gonna work with either the context of my opening seven or with where the game is at right now and understanding when to pivot like that was huge for me and then the third one is just how important deck building was in this tournament 
the, how people are using the legendary land, seeing how people are building their decks according to the alchemy cards. Between both of the formats, not just alchemy, but like these arena-only cards, deck building played a huge role in this event. And it was a good reminder to me to like, I don't know, not be lazy is kind of what it was. So those are, those are my three. That's always my biggest takeaway at every PT, I feel like, is that deck building matters so much more than I already think it does to the point where like it, it's what sets people apart so much is when they, when they can build a really solid cohesive 75 and it works out like when all their decisions come together that's really what separates players so much at that level that's really important too though because like I feel like so often people just try to get too cute right they're like well I just want to be different so I just changed this card so my list was different but like the actual goal right is to present the thing that works well, that's going to do it for our main topic here, talking about Neon Dynasty. Let's move quickly into our Patreon question. If you want to support this, you go to patreon.com slash CCMTG. Adrian asks, CCMTG talks a lot about macro, having a plan, sideboarding, and all that. But my question is about the other big game in Magic, the micro decisions. More specifically, adapting your overall plan to micro things in the game, or if your opponent prioritizes something you don't. Spencer just talked about how he has a hard time with that sometimes in games where adapting your play on the fly. And uh, I think that it is a pretty hard thing to do, especially if you're not being an active participant in the game and you're autopiloting in a turn. You're like, oh yeah, this matchup comes down a lot to about them not resolving Thought Not Seer, so I'm going to be counterspelling Thought Not Seers and calling the great creators, and that's it. And then like, you know, they're kind of leaning in on your life total, and it's like, oh wait, maybe they have like Reality Smasher, I need to be planning my game differently and that sort of thing. It's really hard to come up with a lot of things and talk about it in great detail here, but I would say to talk about what we did uh, a couple weeks ago with like having the heuristics and the, the plans double checking your work is really important and what you think you know about stuff and think about uh, a lot of good players play to what their hands telling them and not to what they think the game plan is and if your opponent's doing something there's probably a reason for that and if they're really good it might be because they're like hey yeah this is normally a control matchup but my hand literally just has all the aggro cards i have so i have to beat you down uh and think about how that changes your stuff would be my quick thing yeah there was a grand prix trial that matt clean was playing in where he and his opponent both had a consecrated sphinx in play and they did that dance for a second matt kept going and his opponent stopped and then his opponent went uh thought scour snapcaster thought scour thought scour snapcaster thought scour snapcaster thought scour snapcaster thought scour and like matt died and it was one of those things where like that's the moment where his opponent pivoted to all right we both draw on our decks how do we win from here? And his opponent quickly identified the micro, right? Like, this is what this game has now become about. And Matt did not. And that, I don't know if there's a better, better example of that pivot. Yeah, I mean, I think that a lot of the times the macro is what influences your micro, you know? Like, a, a classic one of this that has happened in the last five years or so was like, do I attack my opponent or do I attack the Teferi Hero of Dominaria? They're plussing every turn. You know, let's say you're the Teferi player, your opponent choosing to attack the Teferi instead of you that tells you something about what their game plan is or how they expect the game to, to progress. They think that's going to go long enough that the Teferi being in play is a bigger problem than you having life points, and they think they're going to lose that. Or, you know, maybe you're playing a match and you think the matchup's some way, but your opponent thinks it's another. Like, if your opponent has a discard in their deck still, in a, that tells you that they think the game's more about casting discard spells in the early game. Like, that's their micro. So you should adapt your sideboarding plan to make sure that you're the most resilient built to them 
like you should be top decking the best possible because you know that they're going to have these discard spells and normally while you might be able to count on holding on to an extra piece of removal or two because it's just going to sit there until the threats show up they don't want that to happen because they're leaving in all this discard spells so they're going to find ways to use them so you know adapting to the things that you're being shown by your opponent in that way I don't remember it was a conversation I had with LSV or Apollo, but I think that people don't give their opponents enough credit. And when they don't give their opponents enough credit, you end up trapped. If your opponent's doing something actually dumb, I think you're more likely to see it than assuming your opponent is bad. So you should assume the best in your opponent. Yeah, if your opponent's bad and is making bad plays, you should, in theory, win the game. Let's move on to our YouTube question we got from old William Dixon. William said, just wanted to say thank you for doing the show. Just recently started listening, and I'm really enjoying the content. Thank you, William, for interacting and telling us that. That means a lot. Just leaving this comment is so good for the YouTube algorithm. It's where we're trying to grow the show right now, and it's really appreciated. That's why I put it in the show. Also, this is our lifeblood. Getting these type of comments, like, I just started listening. We had some patrons talking about how many times they listen to episodes and go back to them in the Discord this week. It's the best feeling to read that, honestly. An unreal amount of is it dopamine or serotonin? I don't know what it was, but like, all I was high all day, fan. <laughs> good brain chemicals all over the place. That's going to do it for this week's episode. Uh, if you enjoy this show, you should check out the other shows on the network. We have Common Knowledge, a popper podcast, and our Drafting Archetypes, which is a draft-focused podcast with Samuel Black. Those are both two really, really good shows. And we also have Mythic Cast, which is a bi-weekly show hosted by Spencer, where they kind of interview people with arena stuff. That's a great show to listen to. I think y'all are on episode only one, right? This is, this should be episode two this week, correct? For the return. I know you're on a deeper episode, but the return. Oh, I see. Yeah. Se- the new we, season. We're going to be diving deep into maybe like a power rankings episode of the arena formats this week. It'll It should be fun. So like if you're into historic or alchemy or like arena formats and want to deep dive into the data itself that'll be an episode for you to listen to i thought you were saying my show wasn't good for what it's worth you're like two great shows and then you have mythic cast <laughs> well i i'm not gonna lie i forgot mythic cast started back up again i'm on life support right now if you like this show and you want to support the show the show always be free but you can go to patreon.com slash ccmg if you want to throw some monetary value i always mention that part but if you want to help out the show in other ways too like we mentioned you can like the show on the various social media stuff share with friends go and click on that youtube let the video play for a little bit have a good day see our faces while you watch it all that stuff really helps us a lot spencer someone wants to find you where can they go you can find me on twitter at spencer h you can find me every other week on my two other podcasts which is mythic cast and arena mythic cast you can also find me sending support packages to mason wherever i can do so this kid is dying we might need to Started go fund me for him to get some new uh, nasal passages. Like this dude coming out strong. He's throwing the Dayquil. Is that generic Dayquil or real Dayquil? This is brand name. Only the best for oh, me. Dude. That's the Patreon dollars went this month, baby. Woo! Both Mason and I were not feeling it this week. I got super into it, but Mason has been dying this episode, and I just want to just give him a huge shout out because you got to support your homies when they're like doing this kind of stuff, and I really appreciate that. I have started my deck text again on the Constructed Criticism YouTube channel. And the second Mason is feeling better, he's actually going to do a deep dive with me on... I don't actually know if it's always four color. Basically always four color. Black sucks. We're going to do the same thing that we did with Abe, where he's going to teach me four color and coach me on it. Yeah, so. those videos are and incredibly I even have, good. Man. I even already have the deck on MTGO Mason, so it'll be real easy. Heck yeah. I hope you use code 62 and single at checkout with Mana Traders. That way you get 15% off your first two months. What a liar. 
Do you know that you know there was a world in which you wouldn't be allowed to play Magic right now? Because if you are dating a Wizards employee, you wouldn't be allowed to play in tournaments anymore at one point in time. I'll have you know that as long as we don't live together, it doesn't oh, matter. Oh, is that the rule? That is the rule. Yep. The, the rules, That wasn't the, always the rule. As long as I do not live in the same house as uh, Carmen, I am A-OK to play Magic. So y'all suckers are going to have to see me at tournaments. You can find me at your local tournament living my best life each and every week you can also find me on twitter at mason e clark and find me here each and every week along with my card kingdom articles this thursday modern 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 hey what about you you can find me at twitter.com slash more nothings tweet about whatever i like and also tree of tales mtg on twitter and on blogspot you can check out my blog for tournament reports always looking for your tournament reports too if you are interested in telling me about how much you learned and did hashtag always improving at your local tournament or just had a great time and wanted to talk about it, you should send an email over to the email on that account uh, and we can get your story up there. Really just trying to bring your stories to the rest of the people, keep grassroots magic alive. That's it for me. And I think that's it for this week. So everyone have a great one.